Hi, this is Father Nathan. Welcome to this next episode of the Joyful Friar podcast. On the previous podcast, we met the young woman, Rani, R-A-N-I, Rani, who is, whose story is told in the first of my two Afterlife Interrupted books, book one. She's a dear. She um, is a great favorite of mine. I mean, I love all of the people that have been through this process, but she just uh, is uh, very important to me. She indicated early on that she knew that we were writing a book and she loved the idea of being uh, a part of one and that it was something that she aspired to in the afterlife uh, of being somebody who would write a book. She said she liked the idea of uh, someone uh, taking the time to, to spend with her thoughts and um, had read very many books and thought of herself as someone who would like to write one. So I asked her if she would be the afterlife editor of this one. I include Ronnie in my prayer life. I asked her to be with me today as I knew that I was going to be creating three different podcasts today uh, that'll be released over three weeks, but they're, uh, I'm doing them uh, uh, sequentially. So we've just in the previous podcast done a, a digest of her story, the basics of her being in the large tsunami that struck the Indian Ocean off of Indonesia in, uh, the day after Christmas of 2004, killing a quarter of a million people, including dear Ronnie. We learned about uh, the reason that she felt stuck after that was because she had died being disobedient at age 12 to her parents who forbade her to go to the beach on her own. They were on a holiday in Sri Lanka from India where they lived. And she just picked what she said was the worst possible moment. She said, I couldn't have been more unlucky to disobey my parents at the moment that I did. However, in the afterlife, she continued to punish herself and would not allow herself to be, to, she wouldn't even think of herself as worthy of any of the joys of heaven uh, because she had just done such a colossal uh, a damaging thing to her parents and died, you know, as a kind of a poster child for disobedience. Well, anyway, we helped her move through that to moderate that stance and kind of get over it. A lot of us in life have some very bad thing that happened, but we, we go on and it's best that we adapt ourselves to uh, our new circumstance, um, start all over again. So we helped in that process with Ronnie. I, I always uh, make sure that I have people's permission to use their stories. That involves going back to them only once. We're not chatting up people who have died and disturbing their afterlife. Just had a, a really legitimate, I think, Holy Spirit-based question to ask Ronnie, would it be okay to tell your story so that it might help others? And she said yes to that. In the course of uh, her saying yes to that, she gave us a little bit of an update on her life, which you can read about in Afterlife Interrupted, book one. But this is a, this section, this podcast is compassionate response to questions that have arisen in the minds of people who have already heard about Ronnie's story. So I'm going to move through a few of them. The first of them is pretty simple. What happens when children die? Do they grow mature age? Well, I don't know if Ronnie would even like you calling her a child because she felt she was 12 going on 20. But the truth is she was merely a 12-year-old. That's a child in, in my mind. Um, what happens when a child dies? 
well, I've been doing this work for 25 years. And remember, I only deal with, with persons who died suddenly and violently, but I get those who come to me and ask for my help. I've seen that, uh, in fact, children do continue to grow and mature. They have choices about how they can go about that. Uh, but uh, Ronnie wanted to be 20. And one of the things that was was so amusing about seeing her the second time, or at least encountering her the second time in spirit, was um, she spoke like a 20-year-old. And it hadn't been the passage of eight years in the meanwhile. She, she, uh, she said, I'm surprised myself at how rapidly I've matured. Uh, but I dealt with college students most of my career. And I know what a 20-year-old sounds like. And I also think I know about what a 12-year-old might sound like. And Ronnie really did sound like she was 20. And she confirmed that. She said, yes, I moved rapidly up to the uh, the maturity, human maturity that I uh, aspired to to begin with. So, yes, children don't have to stay stuck at, at a certain age. I remember being in Moore, Oklahoma. Can you see over my shoulder the the Antoto 2 book in the, on the wall behind his product placement. It's there for a reason. But um, I was in, I took that story of the Wizard of Oz to Moore, Oklahoma, where you might recall there was a, a horrific tornado, F5 tornado in the suburb of Oklahoma City. People knew it was coming they, a day ahead of time, or at least they were warned that all the conditions were right for a horrible tornado. And they were even advised on television to make plans for how are you going to uh, approach the day tomorrow? Are you going to go to school? Or are you going to go to work? Well, people made their decisions and many chose to um, send their kids to school. The tornado happened to hit right about three o'clock, right about the time schools are letting out. The teachers in the school and more followed the protocols and they brought the children into the basement. The basement was below the restrooms. That's the part of the building that usually has the most sturdiness because of the building materials, all those pipes that are in the plumbing, tile work, bathrooms usually have uh, little or no windows, so you're not going to have a lot of flying glass. It's the safest place to be. And the basement below it, they thought was absolutely the safest place to be, except they took a direct hit from a, the most powerful kind of tornado there is, and it didn't stand up. The, in fact, the pipes burst, flooded the basement, and drowned the children, 38 of them. So it was awful. And if you think about it, many first responders, uh, firemen, um, uh, uh, ambulance folk, you know, uh, EMTs, they're oftentimes they're at an age where they have young children. So a lot of these people were brought to this devastating scene and then had to deal with uh, the bodies of all these children who did nothing but uh, follow orders and the teachers that were trying to protect them. I remember being with a child uh, who had been through that. It was maybe nine months later when I went there and, and was invited to do a retreat in uh, the Catholic parish there. And I remember sitting with this young man whose friend had died in the tornado. And we, I just asked him, you know, what do you think it's been like for him since that? Do you think that he's still alive in the spirit? Do you believe that, that we continue to be ourselves after we die. And he said, yes, I do. And I asked him, but what do you think? Like, does he have to wear the same clothes? Do you have to wear the same clothes you died in? Well, no, nobody would want to do that. Um, and then I asked him, you know, do you think that if he continued to live here, he would have kept advancing each grade until 
he'd be in high school and then maybe college. And he, he might be asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, do you think that that happens after people die? And this 10 year old says, well, that makes sense. Don't you think? And I said, I think so too. I think that that's the, it must work that way. There must be a way that people continue to learn. There must be some, something like afterlife schools where there's an organized way for people to continue to learn things because learning is good. And I would imagine in the afterlife, there's just vast vistas of things to learn about. So anyway, that's, that's the way I answer that simple question. What happens when people die? Do they grow? Do they mature? Do they age? I think yes. I think I've, I've seen that in a few cases. Another question that comes up is, can our loved ones check in on us? After someone that you love dies, can they, um, can they keep track of you? Can they look in? Well, uh, Ronnie told us that she did that. She says, when you're a child and adults say life is short or childhood is fleeting, it can sound very, doesn't sound very convincing. When you're a child, there are just so many things you can't do because you have to wait until you're older. It doesn't feel like childhood's moving quickly at all. You just want it to be over so that you can do the more attractive things. Um, she said, I, I, I will see you again. I look in. I don't think either my parents or I really desire more than that. They're not ones to pine or go to seers or anything like that. They have photos of me and little artifacts, baby things, and so on. They're small. I think it would be impolite to call them shrines, but little collections of photos and other remembrances of times together that they have in their quarters and at work. Here, Ronnie says, I hope the memory of me can bring a smile and not just sadness and loss. I know that they're not angry with me. It was a thought on the day of the big wave that they would be angry with me, but I know that's not really so. Well, I, I often hear from people that are disturbed because they believe a loved one is visiting them. You know, they either have dreams or sometimes children or grandchildren will say that grandma talked to me, or sometimes there are visionary experiences. Sometimes there are uh, little tokens, signatures, uh, the appearance of, uh, it could be hummingbirds, red birds, coins, feathers. Um, they're all kind of, uh, or sometimes it's um, particular songs that keep recurring on the radio or whatnot. Sometimes it's disturbance of electronics in a house uh, that can be associated with some, some kind of visitation. Anyway, you probably, if you haven't had an experience like that, you probably know somebody who has, although they might not have told you because you might have thought they were nuts. A lot of people don't tell these stories out loud. Nevertheless, I get uh, contacted by people from time to time who have experiences of that kind and then panic and think, oh my God, my mother keeps showing up. She must not have crossed properly. My, my daughter, my little baby keeps hearing about a grandma. You've got to do something. Help me. Well, I try to calm them down and say, you know, the fact that a loved one might look in on you or visit or even try to make themselves known in some way doesn't necessarily mean they're in distress. It just could mean they love you and they want to keep a connection and they want to do what was what's within their power and what's holy and legitimate and not creepy um, to stay in touch. Certainly, you know, in the in the kingdom of God. Uh, right acting people are not going to disturb you in the bathroom or in the bedroom. Uh, 
do anything that's that's uh, creepy and, and ghost-like in that way. But yes, I've seen plenty of experiences where people do uh, keep an eye. And I, I've had contacts with my own, my dad in particular, who died in 1997. He sometimes lets uh, me and, and some of my siblings know that he's around. Uh, so that's a yes in my book. Can our loved ones look in on us? Yes, I think so. Um, I'm sometimes asked, why do you think a non-Christian came to you? Well, it's true, um, Ronnie, that her religious affiliation, if she had one, never came up. She was from India, where Christians are something like 2% of the population. It's very unlikely that she was Christian, and it probably would have come up if she was. Uh, she's not the only one. I've dealt with people of all different religious faiths and, and with uh, no faith at all. Uh, I just think death and uh, and its consequences are very universal. It's not a sectarian thing to die and move in, out of body and into the afterlife. And besides, I believe that the word Catholic means universal. There's only there's oneness in the universe. And I'm in addition to being a Roman Catholic priest who can conduct Roman Catholic services and so on. I believe I'm a, a priest at the service of God's universe where God is everywhere and loving everyone. So I don't really find it that strange. Another question that sometimes comes up is where do Jesus and the body of Christ fit in this story? Only on a couple of occasions, but, I, but they were ones that stand out to me. Some lover of Jesus or lover of Christian church is disturbed that I, my technique or my style isn't to ask Jesus to come and take them by the hand and walk them into the light or something. Sometimes people have their own notion of how this ought to work. Um, which frankly, I just think is a little presumptuous. You know, I, I, I try to, <laughs> I try to watch that in myself where I see somebody doing something a way that strikes me as odd or something. Then I kind of check my work and say, well, wait a minute, is it really important that you pass judgment on what this person is doing and how they're doing it? Maybe they just, approach things differently than you do. But back to that question, where did Jesus and the body of Christ fit into the story? Well, for me, the Christ is a category that is pre-Christian. It's Jewish. They were asking Jesus during his lifetime, could he be the Christ? So it was a notion that they had before Jesus ever existed. Christ is from the word chrism. Chrism was used in uh, what we would think of as crowning rituals when a person was raised to some uh, royal state or some uh, state of authority and, and great dignity and honor, there was a ceremony where expensive chrism ointment was poured over their head as a sign of how valuable they were. Uh, and I believe all of us are that, that all of us are immensely valuable to God who brought us into being and that we're always in the body of the Christ not understood in, in, as a strictly Christian idea, but as a universal idea. If you understand that uh, to be Christic is to be chrismed, is to be crowned, is to be uh, shown authoritatively to a group that you are excellent and wonderful. And I, I just think all of us are that already. And so whether I'm using explicitly Christian language or not, I pretty much just let things flow. I'm not directing this as much as I'm at the service of this process. And I believe that God and love are involved in it every step of the way. I loved the fact that Ronnie said, I would like to write a book 
because it showed that even in her afterlife, uh, as uh, which got off to such a rugged start, you know what she had? She had aspiration. That is, she looked toward accomplishing a thing she had not yet done. And she did it with joyful hope, which is hugely important to me. And it's why my podcast is called The Joyful Friar. Uh, um, hope and anxiety share a common theme. That is, they borrow from an unknown future possible outcomes, pull them into the present, and very often cause an emotional response that affects the way that we live in the present. The person who's prone towards anxiety tends to look toward an unknown future and presume it will be bad. And then they pull that presumed badness into the present and worry about it, can make themselves ill, so on. Or you could do the same thing, look into that unknown future and wait in joyful hope. Presume that things will be well and maybe even better than today and pull that into the present, allow that thought to inspire um, the body and the endocrine system, the hormones and so on. Waiting in joyful hope can create lots of goodness in the flesh and in one's attitude toward the present day. So I try to inspire people to wait in joyful hope, um, anticipate uh, good things. Because I really do believe in the cosmic happy ending anyway. And I believe that I'm suited well for this work because I get to watch people <laughs> that have gone through these horrific deaths be so resilient and even joyful, able to tell a story after their car crash or their murder or whatever it was. It's so consistent for me as a follower of Jesus. How in the world do we even dare call Good Friday good? It was a calamitous day, a, a colossal evil on a grand scale and the public humiliation and crucifixion of Jesus. And then three days later, he rises. And he doesn't then try to settle scores with his enemies or come to his cowardly friends and say, where were you when I needed you? He, when he does show up to people, he just says, peace be with you. And in fact, his Holy Spirit enters into those people and begins to live behind their eyes. The Holy Spirit of God moves through them and, and is a part of all that they do in their future. So that's what I would say about, about joyful hope. God bless you for now. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Joyful Friar. You can visit me at nathan-castle.com. Send me a message by clicking the contact button. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can make a donation by clicking the donate button. See you next time. God bless.